Especially now, during the corona pandemic, the demand for online child porn seems to be surging. The production of millions of pornographic images of children being sexually abused. They are uploaded from cell phones, webcams and computers. The pandemic has impacted all aspects of life. Well over one million people globally have now died due to the virus. In many parts of the world, the way we've worked for generations has changed as more and more people work from home, utilising the technological developments of the last few years. But if you look closely, another spectre follows us down this path, a parallel pandemic. And that is one of online child sexual abuse, which has taken a sharp rise around the world. Back in April, on the Impact Coronavirus and Organised Crime podcast, we did an episode based around human trafficking and coronavirus, where I spoke to Anna Borgstrom, the CEO of NetClean, who was already warning that with more people working from home, this would become an issue. Well, I think that uh, both the offender and uh, victims, the children, are spending more times at home and more times out of the office. And I don't think that we have ever lived in a time where we have so many children unsupervised on the internet. And the law enforcement also report that they see an increase in discussion in online forums where offenders say that there is easier to access children right now. Countries around the world are now entering a second lockdown to stem the tide of COVID. And in October, the Internet Watch Foundation reported an increase in numbers of public reports of child sexual abuse, with more people working from home among the contributing factors. Today we're going to be speaking about online child sexual abuse material, COVID and technology. This is Deep Dive, exploring organised crime from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. I'm Jack Megan Vickers. And I'm Lisa Bad, we've been in the So first things first, I think it's prudent to give out a warning to those listening to say that the issues we're talking about today might upset some people. So with that in mind, Lucia, before we jump into this discussion, I wanted to bring in a report that you're involved in called Transformative Technologies, How Digital is Changing the Landscape of Organised Crime. There's a chapter in this report on human trafficking that is particularly relevant for the subjects we're discussing today. According to the report, child sexual exploitation is one of the crimes adapting quickest to the digital age. Can you tell us about that? Well, across organised crime, networks are really using the opportunities that are offered by tech to facilitate their operations. And it's not just in what we usually think of as cybercrime, but also more traditional organised crime areas. And in the report you mentioned, we look at five different markets, looking at wildlife crime, the illegal antiquities trade, drugs and human trafficking and human smuggling. And our findings about how the different criminal markets are using tech vary between the markets. But overall, it really means that criminals have lower overhead costs, greater anonymity and lower risk. And these factors are really emphasised in the context of human trafficking and child sexual abuse material online, known as CSAM. And recent research found that under half of child trafficking victims met their traffickers face to face with most using texts or messaging apps to communicate. And this can really pose a challenge to catching the perpetrator when they've never met the victim. And in child sexual exploitation in particular, the market has really adapted to use a wide range of tech tools. 
ranging from group file sharing services or using online platforms to groom victims, abuse to order dynamics, which is where the abuse is directed from afar um, across the internet. And in a really important trend, the live streaming of sex acts to a closed audience. And this is really difficult for law enforcement to track as it leaves no record of the images streamed on the devices used. So law enforcement really have to be part of that group at the time it's being shown. And has demand for child sexual abuse material been on the increase over the years? At an absolutely horrifying rate. To give you an idea, globally, um, there was a spike from 1 million reports of child sexual abuse material online in 2010 to almost 17 million in 2019 which included nearly 70 million images and videos. And to illustrate how quickly it is for a child to be approached and groomed by online predators, earlier this year, Bark, an organisation providing internet monitoring apps for parents, tried an experiment with one of its staff, a fully grown woman, who posed as an 11-year-old girl online, so with the help of some photo manipulation and graphic designers. And it took minutes Uh, from her opening her accounts on social media platforms like Instagram, Snapchat and TikTok for online sexual predators to start sending her invites and messages. And has COVID exacerbated the problem? It has. COVID affected both the supply and the demand for CSAM. And as Anna Borgström mentioned earlier, the widespread closure of schools led to an increase in unsupervised children on the internet. And it seems like more and more people working from home also gave perpetrators more of a chance to operate. And to to give you one figure which was particularly shocking, the law enforcement in Spain reported a 25% increase of detected connections which were downloading child sexual abuse material from peer-to-peer file sharing networks between the weeks starting 17th and 24th of March, i.e. at the very beginning of lockdown. It's difficult to identify how much of these new downloads are existing perpetrators being more active and how much of this is new perpetrators. But newly produced child sexual abuse material will multiply online and remain available until it's taken down. And if there are new perpetrators, then the likelihood is that they will remain involved after the pandemic. And so we might be looking at a really significant long-term expansion of the child sexual abuse material market. And COVID is a big part of today's podcast. And Lucia, you've been speaking to a number of people involved with combating and reporting on those involved in child sexual abuse material. Yes. We will start in Europe, which is becoming the largest host of child sexual abuse material globally, demonstrating the shift. From 2016, Europe hosted over half of child sexual abuse material online, but this had shifted to over two-thirds by 2019. So, if the EU is primarily hosting material, where is the material primarily being made? I spoke with Fernando Ruiz, Head of Operations at the European Cybercrime Centre, set up by Europol to coordinate cross-border investigations into cybercrime. Well, traditionally, that we always see that the, these kind of offenses are taking place where children are more at risk, when they're in a socially, they're, they're, they're in a structured environments, 
And we have seen uh, historically how the Southeast Asia has been a, a hub for production of this, this material and, and, the, and the facilitation of this kind of criminality. However, it doesn't mean that it's not happening in other places. So we have seen and uh, recently, uh, probably you have seen the news, by the end of last year, we had an operation where a group of people involved in this activity in Romania, so within the European Union, and that's something that is an operation in which we had the opportunity to cooperate. And it doesn't mean that, uh, that this could happen everywhere. This could happen everywhere. It's true that the normally the Southeast Asia has been traditionally, as I said, the, the hub, but uh, I, you, I wouldn't be surprised if we suddenly identify a group of a small network operating in a developed country. So, Fernando, how have the websites and platforms in which this material is shared changed over the years? The way child sexual offenders operate is constantly evolving. Child sexual offenders learn about the successes, the, the, the law enforcement, about the mistakes they made in the past, and they are constantly reviewing their operational security in order to be sure that there are no living traces and the difficult activity of law enforcement. We have seen different modus operandi to be sure that the, the, the law enforcement investigations are, are not easy. In the past, we have seen how within these uh, hidden services within the dark web, in order to access these areas, you need to prove to the administrator that you are a producer, that you have access to children, and therefore you have to send the administrator new child abuse material that the administrator will assess. And if this administrator agrees and confirms this is you are an abuser, you have access to children, then you are giving access to a big area within the forum. They know that it's something that from law enforcement is very difficult to infiltrate because we cannot, obviously, we cannot send child abuse material. And that's a, as a way of ensuring that the community is close only to child sexual offenders. And like this, there are other, we have seen different ways for uh, operating, different modus operandi. And in general, in general terms, the, this community is obviously very concerned about the security, about the activity of law, of law enforcement, and they implement of kind of security measures. Many darknet markets sell a whole range of illicit goods, ranging from drugs to firearms. For example, Alphabet, or more recently, the Wall Street market. Is that similar to the darknet sites you are seeing offering child sexual abuse material? Yeah, that's something, something very unique in this area, is that um, hidden services focus on, uh, on child sexual exploitation are very specific. We have seen that some other online markets, uh, some other hidden services, they are involved in different criminal activities. Uh, just to give an example, when we took down together with the, the Dutch and the, and the FBI, we took down Alpha Bay. That black market was dealing with all kinds of criminal goods. They were dealing with drugs, firearms. They are dealing with all kinds of illegal goods. Well, something very specific in the area of child sex exploitation is that the hidden services involved in this kind of criminality, they are only focused on child sexual exploitation. Is we have not seen markets where you have child sexual offenders plus other kind of criminals. These sites are created by child sexual offenders for child sexual offenders. And this is the only criminality they are involved in. Hidden services involving other activities in, in this area apart from child sexual exploitation. In the past we have seen in the, in the operations that we have had the opportunity to support, we have seen a high level of criminality. I remember, just to give you an example, in one of the successful operations that we had the opportunity to support was the takedown of Elysium. Elysium was a hidden services in the dark web. This site was active for a few months. And however, in these few months, the number of 
users, child sexual offenders register was really high. We are in Palmer where we were talking about 80,000 users registered in just uh, a few months. So the level that gives you an idea how the, the level the, of, of criminality in this area. And we are not talking about a, a place that you can find easily just using one of the search engines that you can uh, you can make a, uh, an easy search and you will find it. We are talking about hidden services that in order to find it, you really have to look into it. It is not something that you will come by mistake or you will find if you are not actively looking for this site. Child sex offenders are, as I said, are really concerned about their security and, uh, and they realize that these kind of sites when there's a huge amount of people, offenders registered are more risky because they have no control on who is participating. So there's an evolution to a smaller sites when the administrators and the moderators, they have more control on who is participating in this community. This is a normal trend that we are seeing also in other uh, areas of criminality, where sites where they are trafficking drugs or where they're trafficking with firearms or with other criminality. They tend to create smaller sites that where they have more control on the participation instead of creating major sites like we saw in the past with hundreds of thousands of users. In the investigations that you're involved in relating to child sexual abuse material, what volume of material are you seeing in the larger cases that you have tracked to date? Child sexual offenders, many of them at least, they collect this material. So just in one case, you can find hundreds of thousands or millions of, of, of files stored because the storage capacity is, is, is increasing and these child sexual offenders are collecting basically this material. Just to give you an example, we are, we are here at Europol. Some years ago, we started to develop a big teen identification function. In order to do it properly, we established a database of child abuse material with videos and pictures that we are received from the law enforcement partners coming from the investigations they are developing. And in just a few years, we have developed what is probably the biggest database of child abuse material that we are aware of. And we are talking about close to 50 million unique files stored in a, in a, currently in our database. So that gives you an example of the amount of, of child abuse material uh, available and, and produced. What's the biggest challenge that you face in your work? We are losing our uh, possibilities, our capacities that we used to have in the past. Because of the evolution of the online environments, we have the lack of data retention. Just to give you an example, in, in some countries, it's, it's a complex issue. The development of technology, the use of encryption, that we are we are having less access to, to data that we used to have is difficult in the investigations. Something that is I will I have to mention is the limited resources that we have in the law enforcement community. The, as I said, the level of criminality is really high, and if you just take into account the amount of referrals that we are we received, and here we have figures that we received, for example, from NECMEC, from the National Center for Mission Exploited Children in US. They receive the referrals from the US-based platform in the area of child sexual exploitation. And we are disseminating these referrals to 18 EU member states. We see the uh, important amount of referrals that we are disseminated on a regular basis. And all these referrals have to be properly checked and analyzed because any of these referrals could lead directly to identification of a victim or the identification of an offender. And this is a huge workload. This is uh, something that's really challenging with the, the pace we are seeing, the increase of, of referral that we are seeing, unless we take actions to properly handle these, these referrals, we won't be able to cope with it. Now we are really struggling. <laughs>
to cope with the with the number of investigations we have, with the number of with the amount of information we are receiving. So therefore, we have to combine expertise, resources, and appropriate use of technology to uh, tackle these problems. That was Fernando Ruiz, head of operations at the European Cybercrime Center, Europol. It was interesting that Fernando mentioned encryption being an issue for law enforcement. That's something we'll have a chat about later on in the podcast. Yes, we will. And it's a fascinating topic. Now, one significant website which became the focus of law enforcement investigations, supported by Fernando's team at the EC3 Centre, was known as Dark Scandals. Dark Scandals was a repulsive pair of websites. Set up in 2012, it boasted that it offered real blackmail, rape and forced videos of girls all around the world. And it featured just that, over 2,000 violent rape videos and child sexual abuse material. It was hosted on both the Darknet and the Clearnet, which means that people were accessing this material through a normal web browser like Safari or Internet Explorer. Indeed, the Clearnet version of this website received page view numbers, and in 2014 it had 13,000 unique visits in just one week. To access this material, users paid for images and videos using the cryptocurrencies Bitcoin and Ethereum, or a user could upload their own material and receive abuse material in exchange. Obscene content was uploaded to an anonymous data transfer service, but before this, uploaded material came with rules, such as, and I quote, real underground sold slave girl videos, or videos with real rape slash forced against will, even actively encouraging users to make their own material, stating that they prefer own made material, and that they are happy to edit it how the user wants. The administrator, who went by the original online moniker of Dark, once rejected a customer's video submission because, and I quote, it's just acted, we don't accept videos like that for the packs. As of March 2020, the Dark Scandal sites had received about 1.6 million US dollars in Bitcoin and nearly $6,000 in Ethereum. In early 2018, law enforcement in the US began their undercover operations by sending a small amount of Bitcoin to one of the payment addresses linked to the site. They received a response from bitcoin at darkscandals.com, an email address hosted by an anonymous email service provider located in Germany. The content law enforcement received back revealed that Dark Scandals was distributing child sexual abuse material, described in the indictment in graphic detail which I won't repeat here. But Don Fort, the now former chief at the IRS Criminal Investigation Unit, said that the types of crimes described in this indictment are the most disgusting I've encountered in 30 years of law enforcement. As investigations continued, law enforcement started to piece together who Dark was, and it was hubris on his part. He was making payments to the service providers of the infrastructure used by the Dark Scandal's Clearnet site from a financial account registered in his own name. His personal email account showed that his regular IP address was based in the Netherlands, and he had emails discussing the operation of the websites. Then in 2018, while making a purchase, he identified himself as the administrator of the site. 
On the 9th of March 2020, the Dutch police arrested the alleged administrator, Dark, at his home in the Netherlands. He now faces charges of distribution of child pornography, production and transportation of obscene matters for sale or distribution, engaging in the business of selling or transferring obscene matter, and laundering of monetary instruments. That was Jack telling the story of the takedown of Dark Scandals earlier this year. The Dark Scandals site operated in a similar manner to many others on the dark net. And one point which is worth highlighting is the use of cryptocurrencies, like Bitcoin, to pay for access to child sexual abuse material online. This is common on darknet websites and can make it difficult for law enforcement to track payments online. Another common thread that we can see from this investigation is that vital to a successful takedown was law enforcement cooperation across national borders. And this is a key component to tackling borderless crimes such as these. Next, we turn to the situation in Bosnia and Herzegovina. And just like in many other parts of the world, COVID has really impacted children. During the first government-imposed lockdown, many children were at home being educated through online learning, which meant they were using their phones and computers more than ever not just for lessons, but also for homework, which meant that school children were spending more time online than ever before. And predators were well aware of this fact. And they exploited the unique situation COVID has put everyone in to create opportunities to abuse children online. We know that Bosnia and Herzegovina has a particularly complicated state structure, which could hamper any state response. I spoke to Amela Afendik, the director of the European Resource Centre for the Prevention of Trafficking and head of the Bosnia and Herzegovina Office for the International Forum for Solidarity, EMAUS, a civil society organisation working to combat trafficking internationally. So there is the national layer, then there are two entities, the Federation of Bosnia and Herzegovina and Republika Srpska, and then there is Bačko District. The Federation is further divided into 10 cantons. So in total, we have 14 layers of governing. In addition to that, we have, contrary to other countries who have one criminal code, we have four criminal codes. So we not only have to harmonize the legislation in terms between the national and the entity in Birchko district, but we also have to harmonize the legislation with the international conventions that Bosnia and Herzegovina has signed and ratified. So having said all of this and explained all of this, it is the attention of the Bosnian government on child sexual abuse in general and exploitation, especially in the digital environment, is quite modest. It is predominantly driven by international donors and by local NGOs. But in terms of any financial means that the government has invested, there are none in the prevention of online child sexual abuse and exploitation. So despite this state structure, has the increase in child sexual abuse material online created a demand for action by the government? It really remains a very, very low government priority, although we are trying to do our best to increase the awareness that children in Bosnia and Herzegovina and the whole region are very exposed to online child abuse and exploitation, and that there must be 
increased involvement and action from the Bosnian government to suppress these criminal offenses and criminal activities and to work more on prevention, education and awareness raising. And how is technology being used by the perpetrators? From our research and from the follow-up that we do through the Safer Internet Centre, in Bosnia and Herzegovina, predators mostly engage with children through the social networks. The social networks are immensely being used by predators to get to know the child, to groom the child, to engage with the child, and to make the child engage into the activities that the predators would want to. So make the child engage into something that has been called child pornography. And still in the legislation of Bosnia and Herzegovina and all its entities in Bershko district, it is called child pornography. But we are strongly advocating for moving away from calling child sexual abuse and exploitation child pornography because pornography is something that stands for a voluntary act of an adult. And it can, in no sense, and legally, it cannot stand along with child or child pornography, because the child, in accordance to the convention, so all the international and local legislation, cannot accept any exploitation. So there is no consent of a child to any pornographic activities. You mentioned crimes relating to the dissemination and download of child sexual abuse material. Are these being prosecuted and investigated by law enforcement successfully? Yes. So uh, the cases are being identified and they are being investigated by law enforcement. For example, during 2018, I can give you some statistical records. There have been 26 orders for investigations for the legislative offense, so for the criminal offense of usage of child or pornography. Three of those have been dropped. So altogether, of the 26 orders for investigations, there have been 13 indictments made by the prosecution. And when we do see these successful convictions, what type of sentencing are we seeing? Well, unfortunately, contrary to the investigations and to the indictments, When it comes to the offenses and to the sentences, they are very low. And by saying this, let me say that for this specific criminal offense of usage of child for pornography, the scope of sentences is from six months to 10 years. 10 years is for the forcing of a child to participate in the production of child sexual abuse material. This sentence is a maximum of 10 years by legislation. Whereas what we see in the statistical records in terms of the offenses, so of the 13 indictments that have been made during 2018, we have a scope of the largest sentences were 5.9 years and 6.2 years for the criminal offense of usage of a child for pornography. The majority of sentences were from three months to one year, whereas even there, four of the 13 were only on a probation period. And this clearly shows that the prosecution and the sentencing of predators for 
the specific criminal offenses that involve any form of production, dissemination, duplication, downloading, etc., of usage of child for child pornography, they still remain very low in comparison to other criminal offenses. I don't even want to compare with other European countries or with countries such as the UK or the United States, where the sentences are very, very high compared to these ones that I have just mentioned. But I will say that, for example, for drug usage, for, for drug production, for drug dissemination in Bosnia and Herzegovina, first, the legislation is almost the same. And I would never compare the production of drugs and, and the usage of drugs to such a, such a terrible criminal offense that is the usage of child for pornography. In my view, those two cannot be compared at all. And the usage of a child for pornography is a much stronger and, and much more terrible and much more horrifying criminal offense than the production of drugs. Yet, the sentences for drug production or possession or uh, distribution are much, much higher than those that I have just mentioned. Criminal sentences seem to be surprisingly low for this kind of crime. Why is that? It largely depends on the judge and on the prosecutor who prosecutes the case and their abilities and their willingness and their understanding of this criminal offense. We have to work on the education and capacity building of both judges and prosecutors to prosecute this criminal offense and to, for example, not use so many alleviating circumstances on the side of the offender who was producing or downloading or disseminating child sexual abuse material. And to give you an example, the alleviating circumstances are that he is a father of three children, that he is unemployed, that his social background is, is poor, that he has said he was sorry, and those cannot be used in court for such criminal offenses that involve children, especially exploitation of children for child sexual abuse and production of CSAM. What is your and Amaus's focus in responding to the growing threat of child sexual abuse material online? The focus of the Safer Internet Center and of IFS Amaus in general is on prevention, not only because of the background of this crime, but also because we have a lot of experience in assisting victims of human trafficking in Bosnia and Herzegovina. For a very long time, we have provided shelter, accommodation, and recovery for victims of human trafficking. But then we came to a point when it was very clear that we cannot only be reacting to a criminal offense. It is very important to provide victims with the needed recovery and assistance. But we strongly believe that it is very, very important to educate our children, especially when we talk about the criminal offense of child sexual abuse online. It is very important to educate the children and to prevent this from happening at all to prevent children from becoming a victim of this crime. So we could educate children, youth, but also parents and teachers how to 
keep their children safe. We are trying to educate children on how to use the technology in a safe way to stay safe online, to stay away from the predators, how to react, how to recognize grooming, how to not disseminate their private and personal information, how to generally safely use technologies to keep themselves safe, to keep their peers safe, to, to protect their friends, but also and foremost parents. And I really have to say that parents are the weakest target group in Bosnia and Herzegovina. So we have to educate the parents the same way as, as parents are telling their children, when you go outside to the street, please look left and right before you cross the street. The parents have to be educated on doing the same thing online. They have to realize and educate their children that the virtual world, what's happening online is very, very real because children forget that. Parents have to educate them how to stay safe. We are trying to support this. This is why we are working with all of these target groups. And I have to say that with this regards, we have the support of the government. I have to say also very good feedback and quite good statistical records of the prevention efforts. That was Amela Efendik, the director of the European Resource Centre for the Prevention of Trafficking and head of the Bosnia and Herzegovina Office for the International Forum for Solidarity, EMAUS. Okay, Lucy, we've looked at the dark net and the takedown of the dark scandals websites before hearing about Bosnia and Herzegovina. Where are we heading next? Next, we turn to Kenya, where in mid-March, as COVID was spreading across the world, the government announced that schools would close until January 2021. And there has been limited focus on Africa as a region for the production of online child sexual abuse material. As we heard from Fernando earlier, Southeast Asia has been the key region of concern. But as connectivity across the African continent has grown, there is increasing concerns that the continent is becoming more vulnerable to production of child sexual abuse material. In March this year, the Kenyan Anti-Human Trafficking and Child Protection Unit said that by the end of the month, shortly after the schools close, the number of cases of child sexual exploitation material shot up and the unit was detecting between three and 400 cases per month by July. The disruption caused by COVID to education and the economy has increased the risk and vulnerability of already vulnerable children and individuals and perpetrators have exploited this opportunity. Judy Cabeira is a fellow of the 2020 Resilience Fund of the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. The perpetrators were able to go to the online space. It shows they have really realised that things have changed. They are not able to move their children or uh, their targets physically. And so they have really jumped ship and gone uh, online. Of course, they also know that the space is a very good hunting ground because they know this is where helpless and innocent children who are not even suspecting of such uh, criminal activities are online. So basically, you've seen they have really changed how they operate. They have really made use of the online space to use children to produce material that they can earn their living and at the same time continue growing their clientele. And probably after we have an easing movement, we are going to see this online 
abuse of children move offline where actually children will be made to meet uh, their future abusers physically. Schools in Kenya, like many countries around the world, have been educating children online due to COVID. How specifically have perpetrators tried to make the most of these new conditions? They have come up with a very cunning way of intercepting or of interrupting classroom, whether it's on Zoom, whether it's on uh, Emit or whatever platforms that children are using. They're coming up with groups that children are likely to identify with and actually fall for. For example, in Kenya, we have the Kenya Certificate of Primary Education. It's written in short form KCPE, and we've had a group called KCPE Revision Group. And you can imagine a perpetrator coming under the name of KCPE Revision Group. So a lot of children are likely to jump and join that group, thinking that it is actually an authentic group. They also have come with other groups such as a PP1 play group. PP1 are uh, younger children who are uh, mostly below the age of six, and they easily join these groups unknowingly. Do we know who is behind this production? Is it individuals or networks, foreigners or Kenyan nationals? It's a mixture. This relationship of where locals and internationals come together to commit uh, such crimes is still happening. And this is happening because we realize that if you look at, for example, the areas where this material is being produced, you know, a place like uh, Kibera, for example. Kibera is very, very densely populated. This is a place where if I took you today and I asked you tomorrow to go back to the same place, you'll never find your way back there. So even when you look at the nature of such places, then it really shows the people involved in, for example, producing such uh, material in Kibera, these are the locals who understand the houses, the streets and everything. So the local aspect of it is quite entrenched and they're quite involved in this production. But again, uh, where are they getting the money or where are they taking this material? It shows they have another class of people, the people with the money, the people with the technology. Looking at also what the anti-human trafficking unit has uh, stated earlier on, the materials, yes, they are consumed locally, but also they have identified areas where the material is also sent outside the country. You identified the Kibera slums, the biggest slums in East Africa, as a hotspot for production. Can you tell us a little bit more about the dynamics around production of child sexual abuse material in the Kibera slums? Actually, another tactic we've seen these perpetrators use is do live streaming of child abuse material. So in Kibera, for example, the people bring children together and even a few grown-ups, you can imagine it's like a crew that they bring together and they prepare these children in advance and they go and hire a certain room and they pay the owner of the room, probably like less than $5 for them to use the room. They can say, we are just going to use this room probably for just 30 minutes to prepare and to put the kids together. And what they do is they give these children alcohol or sometimes they even give them hard drugs and they start streaming live this uh, kind of, you know, really horrible um, kind of production. And it's streamed live. And they are very tactical in that they don't do it for so long because they know the moment they start doing it, of course, the police are watching. So the live stream doesn't even take longer than 10 minutes. So they do it. And once they're done with the live streaming it, and at the same time, they're recording it. They move to another area in Kibera. Kibera is so huge. And even if the police arrive, it's so hard to trace them. Because as soon as they're done with that, they just start another live stream. And, you know, it becomes like a game. And uh, if you look at uh, the second area, the coastal area of Kenya, 
this is an area that is quite popular with child sex tourism. And we've also seen the same tactics employed in Kibera, employed in the coastal part of Kenya, especially Mombasa. They do the same thing, put children together, uh, mostly young girls below the ages of 18, and they do the same thing, live streaming and recording for distribution. What is the perception of online child sexual abuse at a community level? Is it seen differently to its offline counterpart? Yes, it's perceived quite differently. A lot of the communities actually don't even know how the online space works. For them, they believe abuse of a child is physical. They don't see how a child can be abused by, you know, being told oh, something is online. They don't understand what you're talking about. Most of the people in the community do not perceive it as a crime. They don't know anything about the online space. So they don't perceive a crime that is committed online the same way they perceive a crime that has happened offline. And in the face of these growing risks, what should the response be in Kenya and the region more broadly? I think we still have to do a lot of awareness to try and prevent this from happening. Another thing is for the CSOs that are dealing with protection of children. They too need empowerment. So many of them are crying. There are budget cuts. They don't have proper funding. And so this has really hampered the operations. That was Judy Kabira, a fellow of the 2020 Resilience Fund of the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. Okay, so given everything that we've heard today, we need to tackle some of the bigger questions in relation to online child sexual abuse material. For example, social media sites and other surface web platforms, for example, cloud storage companies such as Dropbox or Google Drive, seem to be widely used by perpetrators to disseminate or share material. What are the big tech companies actually doing about that? Well, there's lots of multi-stakeholder initiatives where tech companies are looking to strengthen the fight against child sexual abuse material and the use of tech in trafficking more broadly. So, for example, the Tech Against Trafficking initiative. But more specifically, tech companies share data with governments upon request and they do take down and report some of the content on their website. For example, in 2019, there were around 16.9 million referrals made by US tech company firms, which included 69 million child sexual abuse images to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. That was up by 50% on the previous year. Now, that could show a growth in the child sexual abuse material market, but also greater reporting by tech firms. And that's a huge number, and it does suggest that tech companies are doing a lot. Yes, and it is a vast figure, but those figures hide one key point. 94% of images reported in 2019 came from Facebook. And and why do you think that is? Well, the simple answer is because Facebook actually goes looking for these images. It scans all images and videos uploaded against a database of known child sexual abuse material. And then it uses these to create alerts that it reports to the National Centre for Missing and Exploited Children and also to shut down accounts. So this suggests that other companies could screen like Facebook have been doing, but don't. That's right. So most companies don't do this kind of comprehensive screening. And of course, there are some platforms which are encrypted, such as WhatsApp or some of the Apple platforms, and they don't screen because they can't. 
Are they not required to, though? No. In most countries, there is no legal obligation for online tech platforms to go looking for child sexual abuse material online. It's voluntary and in line with the terms of use of the website. But there is a growing argument that there should be more legal obligations on tech companies, including to monitor content. And of course, this is part of the bigger question of who should govern the internet. And we're at an absolutely pivotal moment in this debate. And so there are some key questions around, as I mentioned, the obligation to monitor, but also whether tech platforms should be liable for content on their site. So at the moment, tech companies aren't liable? In most places, no. And it's a complicated area. Should tech companies be liable for content they're not aware of? And what obligations do you put on companies to take steps to make themselves aware? But as I said, the situation here is changing. To take one example, in the US, until 2018, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act offered a full shield for companies from being sued for content appearing on their platforms or for removing it. But in 2018, the enactment of the SESTA-FOSTA package, which is two separate laws, the Stop Enabling Sex Traffickers Act and the Allow States and Victims to Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act, which created a hole in the protection offered by Section 230 and allowed penalisation of websites that knowingly assisted or supported in sex trafficking and prostitution. Now, the impacts of this to date haven't really been that clear, but the tide does seem to be turning in that direction. And more recently, the proposed EARNIT bill, that's the acronym, which is currently passing through the legislative phases in the US, would permit enforcement of any state law regarding the advertisement, presentation, distribution of child sexual abuse material. So there does seem to be a change in approach. And also in the US, at the moment, a broader debate is being put forward to remove Section 230 entirely. And this is driven by concerns about the power of social media sites to censor content. Now, this is a slightly different conversation, but it does come down to points which could have really significant repercussions for the role of the private sector in addressing not only child sexual abuse material, which seems to be covered by the Earn It Bill, but also other online illicit markets. And the conversation is not just happening in the US. In the EU, the conversation is happening as well, and the UK is a pioneer of this. The online harms policy and upcoming bill mean that we could be about to see a significant shift in what tech companies are required to do. And Fernando mentioned that encryption could pose a challenge to investigations. And you mentioned that some website providers don't scan because of the use of encryption. Tell us a little bit more about the role of encryption. Well, encryption is a double-edged sword. It's great because it ensures privacy and the security of communications, but it also gives an opportunity for criminals to communicate and share content, including trading child sexual abuse material hidden from law enforcement. And it also means that where a messenger app or platform is encrypted, the hosting company can't screen it. And that's why governments around the world are really worried about the growing adoption of encryption by messaging apps. So last year, Facebook announced that all its services would be fully encrypted in the near future. 
And that means that those millions of reports would vanish. And this is really a key concern with the EU identifying it as one of the biggest challenges in the strategy it published in July for a more effective fight against child sexual abuse. Now, the way forward that the EU proposes is that there should be solutions that allow companies to detect and report child sexual abuse material in end-to-end encrypted electronic communications. But it's broadly accepted that if you build a backdoor into encryption, it can be used by anyone. So it's unclear what these solutions will look like. What is clear is that although we see the volume of child sexual abuse material growing extremely quickly, and it seems to have really accelerated through the COVID pandemic, the growth of encryption is hampering the ability of both the private sector and law enforcement to identify it. Indeed, that's certainly something that we we need to think about. Well, that's it for this episode of Deep Dive Exploring Organised Crime. And we'd like to thank Fernando Rui, Amela Efendik and Judy Kibera. The paper from the GI that we discussed at the top of the podcast, Transformative Technologies, is available in the summary to this episode and it's also available on our website, which is www.globalinitiative.net. While you're there, you can access loads of other research from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime, publications ranging from corruption to gangs to drug trafficking and environmental crime. And there are also other podcasts available from the GI, such as Africa and the Global Illicit Economy, Faces of Assassination, and our brand new Spanish-language podcast, Coaliciones por la Resiliencia. Please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Share it around as well. It only takes a moment of your time, but it helps us improve the show. You've been listening to Deep Dive Exploring Organised Crime from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. I'm Chat Megan Vickers. And I'm Lucia Bird, Rui Benitez de Lugo. Thanks for listening.